Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. It's easy to think of slaveholding as a male profession. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry, and countless other men are often the names that come to mind when we think about early Americans who held other people in bondage. But white women, especially in the American South, were equally invested in slavery as owners in human property, and a new generation of historians is helping us to understand why and how. One such scholar is Dr. Stephanie Jones-Rogers of the University of California, Berkeley. She is the author of the new book, They Were Her Property, White Women as Slave Owners in the American South. This book recently won the LA Times Book Prize and the Best Book Award from the Society for Historians of the Early Republic. On today's episode, we bring you the audio version from my colleague Dr. Kevin Butterfield's recent live stream interview with Dr. Jones-Rogers. It's an illuminating look at an underexplored topic that we're only just beginning to better understand. Just a reminder to like and subscribe to Conversations on Apple, Google, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Season 5 of Conversations is coming very soon, I promise you, and we thank you very much for your patience and your support. And now, let's explore white women as slave owners in the American South with Stephanie Jones Rogers. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Kevin Butterfield. I'm the executive director of the Washington Library at George Washington's Mount Vernon. Uh, welcome and thank you for joining us. We have an opportunity tonight to learn from a great historian about one of the a topic that actually people had not explored uh, until quite recently. Uh, and this idea of women as slaveholders is something that, that Dr. Stephanie Jones Rogers is going to explore with us tonight. But we have an exciting series of events coming up. And I want to just give you a brief preview of, of what's right around the corner. Uh, on August 27th, uh, we'll be having a digital talk with Dr. Frank Cagliano of the University of Edinburgh, talking about the complicated relationship between George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. Uh, and next uh, month's Ford Evening Book Talk will take place on September 15th. That'll be a Tuesday night, uh, where Dr. Susan Schiller from our Mount Vernon team, the uh, um, Executive Director for Historic Preservation and Collections, uh, will be joined by um, Richard Dietrich and discussing his new book, in Pursuit of History, A Lifetime of Collecting Colonial American Art and Artifacts. Uh, but as I mentioned here tonight, we have uh, an opportunity to explore a history uh, about which I knew very little until I began to read this brilliant and gripping book. Dr. Stephanie Jones Rogers is an Associate Professor of History at the University of California, Berkeley, earned her degrees from Rutgers, her PhD in history in particular, and her dissertation, upon which this book is based, was the winner of a significant prize from the Organization of American Historians, the Warner Scott Prize for the best doctoral dissertation in U.S. women's history. Her research has focused primarily on gender and American slavery, uh, but she's also a great scholar of, of early American legal history and economic history, particularly as it pertains to systems of bondage, the slave trade, and is currently a work on something that I'm excited to uh, hopefully brief, briefly touch on tonight, a new look at the uh, ways in which West African customs and laws influence English thinking about matrilineal descent and property ownership and the laws of descent in the North American colonies. She's joining us tonight to, to discuss this book, They Were Her Property, White Women as Slave Owners in the American South. It was an absolutely uh, uh, challenging read uh, because it dives into a history, again, about which uh, many people know very little, women as slaveholders, and in fact, girls as slaveholders, uh, but it also uh, because some of the stories that it tells are quite difficult to grapple with. Uh, and Dr. Stephanie Jones Rogers uh, worked very hard on creating this book. And earlier this year, uh, this book was awarded the 2020 Los Angeles Times Book Prize in History, 
Uh, we are excited to welcome Dr. Stephanie Jones-Rogers uh, for this conversation. Dr. Jones-Rogers, Stephanie, if I may, how are you? Hi, Kevin. How are you? I'm doing really wonderfully. Can you tell us where you're coming from? I'm actually in my home in, in Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. How about you? I am in my home in Berkeley, California. Okay, well, welcome, and uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, we're going to have a conversation for about an hour, and I've got a, a couple of things I wanted to ask you uh, before we go to audience questions. So all of those, out, all of the people out there um, uh, can be thinking about questions they'd like to ask, post it on whatever um, uh, forum they're watching us, and uh, we can come to those questions in, in just about 25 minutes or so. Uh, but let's start with a, 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 a pretty a big question, and, and one of the things that I, I, I learned in reading this book uh, is that you you were exploring a topic that really historians have not grappled with effectively before, uh, white women, and particularly married white women as slave owners. I wonder if you could just give us a sense of, of, of what brought you into this topic. How did you begin uh, the research and then this book? So it really started, the project started in graduate school, and I happened to be in a research seminar and I was exploring this one particular slave-owning woman named Marie Lalaurie. Um, many people may have may know her, may be familiar with her story, or at least a kind of um, fan, a fantastical version of her story um, via the, uh, the show American Horror Story. Um, but she was a married woman. She had been widowed before, so she had inherited property from her husband, um, including enslaved people. And she was the, the kind of uh, source center of a scandal. Um, in, in New Orleans, um, in large part because um, rumor had it that she had tortured and even murdered some of her slaves. So I was really interested in, in exploring this particular case. Um, and so during that during that class, during that seminar, one of my classmates asked me, well, you know, it's all well and good that you found this one woman who's married, who's able to hold on to property and exercise control and power over that property. But how many other women were there? Were there other women like her um, in, in the broader sense, not the violent part of her, her story, but in the broader sense of married women being able to own um, enslaved people in their own right. And so I didn't know the answer to that question. And I was really intrigued by that question. And so I kind of just went on a hunt, a scavenger hunt in many respects into the archive to try to find an answer, to try to come up with an answer to my colleagues, my classmates question. Um, and that culminated in the dissertation and, and subsequently um, the book that we are talking about today. Fascinating. One of the things that I took away from this book, uh, and, and I think one of the takeaways that you're hoping that readers uh, uh, come away with, is, is this uh, the, uh, a stark reality that white Southern women um, knew slavery. They, they knew it closely. They, it wasn't something that was at a distance from them, something that happened far away from their daily lives, but they, they knew slavery. How did you come to, 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 to this realization that white women, and uh, particularly white women throughout the South who were married, still actually knew the ins and outs, the daily workings of the institution of slavery. So one of the things that was really frustrating as I completed the dissertation, um, it, when I went into the sources, when I went into the archives, was what I saw as a disconnect between um, the historical scholarship that focused on the experiences of African-Americans um, in the 19th century and that scholarship that focused on white Southern women um, in the same period. Um, there seemed to be a disconnect around the question of whether women, particularly married women, could own um, enslaved people could own property in their own right. Um, those scholars that looked at the experiences of African Americans, particularly enslaved African Americans, argued that yes, they did they did indeed own enslaved people and they could indeed own enslaved people in their own right. Um, while that wasn't the, the case with those scholars that focused on the experiences of white Southern women, there were always these qualifications 
around how they may have come to be in the rare circumstances in which they could own enslaved people or they controlled enslaved people. And so what I noticed also was that part of that disconnect had to do with the kind of sources that these scholars were using. The scholars that focused on white Southern women's experiences were largely looking at their letters and their diaries and correspondence, whereas those individuals who focused on the experiences of African-Americans and enslaved African-Americans in particular were looking at a, a body of interviews conducted with those indiv individuals by the federal government during the 1930s and 1940s. And so those interviews are rich in abundant sources, which when looking at them very closely to see what enslaved people and formerly enslaved people had to say about white Southern women and their deep investments in the institution of slavery, particularly their economic investments in the institution of slavery, a very clear picture um, appeared for me um, in relationship to that question that I, I was pursuing, the answer to, answer to which I was pursuing. Um, those interviews made it very clear that white women, especially married women, were deeply invested in the economy of American slavery and in some ways that slavery was their means by which to secure and to exercise a certain kind of freedom in their life, um, in their lives, um, in ways that other um, um, realms of their they, they weren't able to do in other realms of their of their um, lives and in in, in, in um, communities. One of one of the things that I think we should, should try to dive into deeply for a moment, so we can understand the, the legal landscape here, uh, is uh, the, the law on the books might make it seem as if married women would have a hard time owning property, such as enslaved human beings. Uh, can you talk to us about that law on the books and what's the sort of legal framework uh, by which some people might have assumed this wasn't really possible, and how you came to uh, understand the reality? Absolutely. So you're absolutely right. So in addition to um, the sources, um, the, 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 the body of laws in this moment in the 19th century and well before the 19th century suggested to, to scholars before me and even suggested to me when I began this project that white women who happen to be married wouldn't even be able to own um, property in their own right, in, in whether that be land or, or, or enslaved people. So the law that I'm referring to is called doc, uh, the Doctrine of Coverture. It's a legal doctrine, which essentially says that when a woman becomes a married woman, when she if she owns any kind of property, if she earns any wages, um, if she inherited any wealth, um, that property, that wealth, those wages would immediately become her husband's upon marriage, unless she um, uh, made special arrangements to prevent that from happening. To, to stop that from happening. Um, in large part, most women in the South, most women in the country at this point, were not able to um, you know, create workarounds, to create legal loopholes or take advantage of legal loopholes um, in order to circumvent the constraints that, that that doctrine imposed upon their lives and their ability to own property, be it land or, or enslaved people or, or something other than that. Um, but the women in this book were able to do that. The married women in this book um, were able to, um, one, determine um, how, you know, how they could, in fact, um, secure um, certain kinds of property to themselves and what legal instruments, what legal ways or means um, they would be able to use in order to do that, in order to accomplish that. So the law on the, on the face of it looks like these women shouldn't have the, you know, shouldn't have the ability to own enslaved people in their own right or own any kind of property or wealth in their own right. But there were also legal loopholes. Um, if you read the laws very closely, there are also legal loopholes in the property law system that allowed for women to use those laws to circumvent the constraints and the, and the limitations imposed upon their lives vis-a-vis um, -vis, uh, the, the doctrine of coverture. 
And one of the things I've learned from your book that I, I never uh, had heard an inkling of before is that in those efforts by women to 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 find workarounds, to find ways to have some sort of claims to property, Southern women made particular effort or put particular emphasis on enslaved people as the kind of property they wanted to own. Can you tell us about that discovery? Absolutely. So um, there have been um, studies um, done for the colonial period that have established um, that women um, often they, when they inherited property from their families, they often inherited more slaves than any other form of property if they were in the, in the in the South in particular. And so, when you when you establish that, when that when once you realize that that fact is an established fact, then you come to realize that in many respects, these women were far more deeply invested in slavery than sometimes than their husbands were or um, their, their soon-to-be husbands were. So they were also deeply interested in protecting that property from husbands who, you know, in some cases, you know, just didn't know what to do with property, would squander the wealth that they that they, that they um, inherited or acquired as a consequence of their marriages. So women and their families work together, work with each other to develop these protective mechanisms to ensure that husbands didn't um, squander their property, get their hands on that property and then squander that property. But they were most, in, most interested in cre um, creating protective mechanisms around enslaved people in large part because they were more often in um, um given enslaved people than land, um, and they were more often, um, they often had no land at all, but only slaves. So there was a deep investment in, in slavery on the part of many of these women in large part because that was the, their primary source of wealth. When, uh, when I was uh, first uh, coming into your book and, and, and starting to explore the topic in your writing, there's a phrase that jumped out at me. I think it's even the title of one of the chapters, uh, Mistresses of the Market. And I wonder if you could break that down for us. Uh, uh, the word mistresses, I think, is, is a useful one in your writing. Uh, but you also talk about their, uh, the ways in which these women were uh, deeply uh, a part of the marketplace. Uh, can you tell us a, a, bit, a bit about those, those discoveries? So there have been a wonderful and eloquently written studies um, of the slave market that have argued that women didn't go to the market because that wasn't a place for, for women to be. Um, that they avoided the market because that was a masculine place and space that the things that happened in the slave market in particular were just, a, you know, were, were repulsive, were um, sexually um, and socially dangerous um, and improper for a woman um, to see and to to encounter. And so there's there had that that particular argument has really, I think, um, shaped much of the scholarship that has um, that has um, come before mine in relationship to women's relationship to the slave market. Um, but again, when I foregrounded the experiences of formerly enslaved people, when I said, OK, well, what do formerly enslaved people have to say about these women and their relationship to the slave market? Um, what do they tell me? And what they told me was that these women were extremely savvy businesswomen, that they were financially astute, that they entered the slave market themselves, like physically went to the slave market, but also found all of these other ways in which to engage in slave market activity, that they were mistresses of the market. And when I when I refer to them as mistresses of the market, I'm not referring to them as mistresses in the in the sense that, oh, you know, they took care of their households, they, you know, they, they controlled um, household finances or household expenses, etc. I'm talking about the kind of um, the kind 
kind of power and control that we accord to masters, um, the, the term mistress actually um, is defined in such a way that it's it's the, the, the female equivalent of mastery of the market. Um, so when I talk about these women being mistresses of the market, I'm talking about women who are entering the market highly knowledgeable, um, completely savvy about the market. There are women that I talk about in the book who are reading about cotton prices in, you know, in England, and they're adjusting um, their activities on their on their plantations accordingly. So these women are very much so tapped into um, this broader, um, a global um, economy that is in many respects dependent on enslaved labor and enslaved pro- the production, enslaved production, and the, the products that they, they produce and, the, and that they harvest and cultivate. So these women, when I talk about mistresses in the market, I'm, I mean um, that they are able to wield a certain kind of power and, and possess a kind of knowledge about the market and about the economy, one that's highly dependent on slavery um, in many of the same respects as as men are at this at this time. Sometimes they're even more savvy. That, that was one of the things that I thought was quite shocking. Some of these women were even more financially savvy um, and, and had far more market savvy than some of the husbands um, that, that they are wedded to. So that was one of the really interesting findings um, that, that came about um, in, you know, as I was doing the research for this book as well. So, so many things I want to ask you, but I want to remind the audience that you have an opportunity to ask questions too. So please be posting them. We'll come to them shortly in, in just about 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, one of the things that, that we are, are often able to do at Mount Vernon, including when we discuss the histories of the enslaved community here, is get very up close and personal. We're, we're able to know some of their uh, uh, full biographies. And, and of course, with George and Martha Washington as, as the heads of the of the estate, we, we, we talk as if we have have met them before, right? We, we know these people quite well. We've been talking in very broad strokes the, uh, the, the, this evening thus far. Could you maybe dive into a particular uh, story or example that helped you to understand the relationship between uh, married women and the institution of slavery? Is there a particular story that jumps out to you or a particular person that w- might be um, useful for us to, to talk about in, in detail for a moment? Well, I start the book, I start in the introduction, I, I introduce um, a, an, a formerly enslaved man named Lit Young. And what I thought was really fascinating about uh, about Lit Young's interview is that it was all about his, in many respects, it was all about his mistress and, and her life, his life with his mistress. Um, his, his mistress was, um, you know, what he said was a very profane, you know, kind of um, very um, assertive and aggressive I- Irish woman who had been twice uh, widow- married and widowed, um, was on her third husband, um, and that um, she refused to allow her husband to have any say, any control, any intervention whatsoever um, or influence over the enslaved people that she brought into the marriage. She had complete control over them. Um, she was the one who hired the overseers, who managed them in the fields and managed their labor in the fields. And when her, her overseers didn't do what she asked them to do, she replaced them. Um, she also um, found out later, she suspected that her husband was a was a Yankee. And lo and behold, he ended up um, serving as a surgeon um, and as a physician for the Union Army during the Civil War. Um, you would imagine she would say, you know, um, the jig is up. No, she didn't say the jig is up. She said, I, I need to get away from this area because the Union 
the Union soldiers are coming. Um, I need to avoid in interacting with them, um, confronting them. So she picked up all of her most valuable possessions, including her slaves, without her husband, by the way, and moved to Texas, moved from Mississippi to Texas. Um, trying to avoid the, um, the the emancipatory, you know, emancipatory consequences of the Union Army um, confronting them. So she gets she gets them there. She pays, um, you know, guards to, to ensure that none of the enslaved people run away. And she keeps them enslaved for a year, for a year after slavery is over. So we know about Juneteenth because for all the reasons that we know about Juneteenth this year. So she was she freed she freed these enslaved people. Um, on Juneteenth as a consequence of Texas being um, occupied by Union soldiers. But it's pretty lit Young's story, his account, in account of his mistress, that we learn how she interacted with enslaved people, what she thought about, um, and how she valued the um, enslaved people, the enslaved people that she owned, and the ways in which that value, um, her, the, the value that she placed on those enslaved people, how that was, that took precedence over, you know, the kind of um, amicable relationship that she could have for, with her husband, who she left behind in Mississippi. So there's a, I thought it was a really wonderful and rich story. And the other really fascinating thing about Lit Young is that he's one of the few enslaved people that we have photo, a photograph of. So I was able to incorporate that into the book because I think we think of slavery and enslaved in this period as so far, far removed from where we are now. But this is in the 1930s and 1940s when these formerly enslaved people are talking to us about their experiences. And we do, in fact, have images of them. So I thought it was really important to include a a few of those images so that the reader, are, the, the people who read this book will, will be closer, will feel closer to that history. And so Lit Young's, you know, account of his mistress was really, I thought, was a, an extraordinary example of, you know, how married women, even if they're widowed, how married women um, in the context of marriage are able to kind of carve out this space where they can exercise a certain kind of power that they can't in, in other ways in their lives. Fascinating. And, and I, what you described about the the proximity of the 19th century and, and the end of slavery uh, is, is uh, maybe helpful for me to take us just a, a bit even farther back. Uh, at Mount Vernon, we often uh, are exploring an 18th century world of slavery um, where uh, we, I, I'm assuming there are some dif differences and some, and some continuities from the 19th century world that you primarily studied. What can you tell us about the 18th century and, and ways in which it might have been a bit different or had some real uh, uh, parallels to what you uh, were exploring somewhat later. So, you know, when I when I talked about the doctrine of coverture and the ways in which women were able to circumvent um, the doctrine of coverture, um, what I was struck by in, in relationship to Martha Washington's um, experience was that she did she wasn't able to to use those loopholes that I described um, when she um, entered her marriage um, with George Washington. She entered the marriage with 80, 84 enslaved people, um, but those enslaved people weren't weren't her weren't hers. She was essentially the the kind of custodian of that property, in large part because of the laws that were on the ground in the 18th century and the ways in which she, you know, wasn't able to use legal loopholes that weren't necessarily available to women in that period of time. But one of the other really important distinctions between the 18th and the 19th century has to do with the, the market and enslaved people. The market was very, very different in these two periods. Um, the market in the 19th century was revolutionized. Um, it was more technologically savvy. It was far less rudimentary. 
century. Um, there were, um, you know, it became a national or in some case, in some cases, a national, but a broadly a regional um, market, um, whereas before in the 18th century, it was a very localized um, market. So the market market in enslaved people was very, very different in the 18th, um, in, in the 18th century versus the 19th century. Um, women's ability to enter into those markets However, we're identical. That's what I think is really extraordinary is that, you know, there's this impression that, you know, there's an argument that in the 19th century, women weren't able to, to access the market because of all the reasons why I just explained. But scholars of the colonial period of the 18th century talk about women going into the market, this market to buy enslaved people and sell enslaved people all the time. Um, so the, the colonial scholars actually say that women like Martha, women like Mary, Mary Washington could in fact go into the market and have no problems whatsoever buying and selling enslaved people, um, you know, on their own. Um, however, that that seems to shift when people start to talk about the 19th century. But what I argue is that in relationship to women's access to the market, that the, the, the changes, the revolutionization of, of the market in the 19th century actually opened up the market to far more women who then, then weren't able to access the market in the 18th century in large part because it was rudimentary, it was less regional, it was, you know, um, not as technologically savvy and scope and in and, and, and dimension and in and, and all these ways. So I think there are some important distinctions between the two periods, but there are also some really important parallels. And that the main and main and I think most vital parallel in relationship to this book is that women were able to engage in slave market activity, were able to buy and sell slaves, enter and enter into those markets in the 18th and 19th century in many of the same ways. But their their activity actually benefited from they benefited from the changes, um, the transformations of the 19th century market. Um, so those those are some of the really interesting um, distinctions and parallels that I think I've seen. That's, that's very helpful for me. And, and one of the things that um, I, I'm, I'm assuming is, is also a, a, something that would be a, a continuity and, and, and something you explore in the book that I'm, I'm eager to learn a bit more about with you, uh, is the way in which um, young women, and, and by here I mean girls, children, uh, were introduced uh, into the, the role of being a, 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 a mistress uh, at, at a very young age. This mm-hmm. is something that uh, I, I um, there's, there's accounts in the book that are, are, are quite personal and quite, quite uh, um, uh, engaging and, and difficult. Uh, but can you tell us a little bit about the, the exposure of, of the role of being a slaveholder for young women? So I think that, you know, for for some reason, one of the things I was struck by when I was you know, researching the book and when I was in graduate school and, and reading about white Southern women in particular and their experiences with regard to slavery was that it seemed like the, the stories always started when they were adults. And when you when I looked at the interviews um, that had been conducted with formerly enslaved people, formerly enslaved people talked about little girls, you know, exercising control over them, um, little girls punishing them when they stepped out of line or they committed some infraction. Um, little girls who, in fact, um, had been, you know, um, given permission to whip or, or to participate in kind of group punishments and group disciplinary actions with fathers and mothers. So I thought it was really interesting that formerly enslaved people started the story of women's socialization um, in slavery and in slave ownership in infancy. Um, there are instances in the court records that I that I include in the book of women who go to court to, you know, contest some debt you know, some some um, a predators, um, you know, claim to their property by saying that they they actually were given enslaved people when they were infants, nine, nine months old, one year old, 
um, et cetera. So the, the, in, in the claims that enslaved people and formerly enslaved people are making in their interviews about their, these women um, really starting, beginning to cultivate um, relationships to slavery and slave ownership and develop identities as slave owners in infancy are corroborated by the legal record where women themselves are att attesting to these very young, these very early moments in which they become slave owners in their own right. So um, that was one of the, one thing that I thought was really fascinating. And the other thing, as I mentioned, is the fact that um, the, the, the exercise of mastery, the exercise of control over enslaved people was also something that began very, very, very early. Um, you know, I start on one of the chapters um, called Mistresses in the Making um, with a description of a three-year-old girl who is, um, she, she becomes very upset with um, the woman who is charged with her care, the enslaved woman who's charged with her care. She goes to her father and she asks her father to cut off the woman's ears and go find an, her replacement in the slave market. And she's three, you know? And so he, the father is just thinking this is the funniest thing ever. He writes a letter to his sister and he's like, guess what happened with Lisiana today? Lisiana said, you know, so these relationships, they're the, the identities that they cultivated as female slave owners began in infancy and in girlhood. And they, they had no choice but to develop these, these, these identities. These identities evolved over the course of their lifetime. So by the time they got married, they have their staunch, you know, kind of firm belief that they should, in fact, own this property, control this property in their own right. And so they exercise, as I said before, they exercise control over their property, but they also use these legal loopholes to get around um, the doctrine of coverture in order to ensure that that happens. Uh, fascinating. And one of the things that I, I am, uh, uh, keeps coming up in our conversation tonight and is a, a real foundation for, for your book, uh, and, and it appears all throughout uh, uh, virtually every page. I feel like it's touched by something you keep mentioning, and I'd love for you to explain and, and dive into it with our audience, uh, these interviews. Can you tell us about the 1930s and 1940s interviews? Um, I, th I think maybe people have heard about these sort of New Deal era uh, efforts uh, to, to try to interview formerly enslaved people, uh, but how many were there? What, what kind of things uh, uh, happened in these interviews? What can you tell us about the, the, these amazing documents? So in the 1930s, many people were out of work, as most I'm sure most of our, our viewers um, um, know. Um, and so during the Great Depression, um, the federal government decided to try to put as many of those people back to work as possible. So one of the um, entities that they created in order to do that was the Federal Writers Project. And the Federal Writers Project had many, many tasks, many, many charges. But one of the charges was to try to find as many formerly enslaved people who were still living as possible throughout the country and then to ask them about their experiences in slavery. And so they were able to find approximately 3,000 enslaved people um, still living. Um, some people, some, some have argued, Norman Yetman, um, who has done much research on um, the WPA um, project, um, in particular the, the interviews conducted with enslaved people, said that this is really only 2% of um, the individuals who are actually living at that time. But these are the, the documents that we have available. So we have approximately 3,000 um, of these interviews available. And um, what I think is really fascinating is that they had a questionnaire. So the um, the, inter the writers who were charged with finding these individuals, they had a questionnaire to work from. But in many cases, they didn't use it or 
what they what I think one of the most wonderful things about these interviews is that formerly enslaved people, you know, gave them information that they didn't ask for. <laughs> and so one of the things that they often asked them was, well, who who was your owner? You know, who owned you? Who was your mistress? And it's through those questions, those series of questions, that the details about their owners come to light. Details in particular about um, the, the women that own them come to light or the women that owned other people in their families um, come to light. So when I, when I, started this project, um, I did not find, I didn't expect to find any women or I found, I expected to find few rare examples of women who owned enslaved people. When I went into these interviews, um, I simply just started with, okay, let me just look for the reference to mistress and all the kind of derivations of the vernacular de derivations of mistress, Mrs., Miss, et cetera, et cetera, and see what enslaved people had, formerly enslaved people had to say about these women. And so it was, you know, one of the first ones that I remember, I just kind of, you know, got up and did a little dance <laughs> in the in the room. Um, one of the first ones was an enslaved, a formerly, a, the son of a formerly enslaved man who had had conversations with his father. And his father said that he had gone to a slave auction once. And the vast majority of the individuals who purchased enslaved people there were women. And I was like, what? Wait a minute, what? <laughs> And so I just kept, it just encouraged me to keep going. And so, so much of what is in this book is largely derived from the interviews with formerly enslaved people, what those individuals had to say about women who owned them, who owned their family members, et cetera. Um, and then what I did was use those interviews and use the details of fragments of information, the, 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 um, the, the, de the details of the information they provided to go to other archival um, sources, sources that many historians deem far more legitimate than these interviews. Um, there have been a number of scholars who have, you know, criti critiqued these and these or, or, or cautioned historians about using them um, or said that we should approach them with caution um, for a whole host of reasons. And I took that advice into, you know, into consideration, but used this use the information that I gleaned from these interviews to then go to um, court records, uh, financial records, account books, um, diaries and letters, um, Civil War correspondence, newspapers, even photographic Im images and illustrations um, to corroborate um, or to support what formerly enslaved people were saying when it's usually the other way around. But I wanted to foreground these these individuals' experiences and their accounts and reflections and then support that those those reflections and those those recollections with the information that I found in other sources, in other archival collections. So these are just extraordinary um, because what I was able to do is produce what I see as an African-American history of white women's economic investments in the institution of slavery. And that's something that has not been done before. So I was really excited to be yeah. able to. Well, let me, I, I'm, we're at a point now where I'd love to move towards audience questions, but while we're making that shift and while we're getting our first question ready, uh, if someone wanted to track these down and re start reading some of these interviews themselves, are they easy to find? Can they find them? They are, sorry, <laughs> they are super easy to find. Great. Um, on the Library of Congress's website, the project is called the Born, it's called Born in Slavery. And so if you go to the Library of Congress's website, you put in Born in Slavery and you'll have access to a, a, a huge chunk of them. Um, many university libraries also have access to the published versions of these as well as digital versions, but free to anyone is the um, the collection that the Library of Congress maintains um, online. Um, so they'll, they'll be able to see them and also download them if they want to. 
and see some of the images and hear some of the interviews, which is really extraordinary too. That is, that's fascinating. That's great. Thank you for the tip. All right, let's go to an audience question. What do we ha- what do we have first? Um, we are going to. Um, I think it should pop up as a banner. Here we go. All right, Christina wants to know. Uh, uh, about the historiography, uh, a scary word for for, for first timers, but just the, the history of history. What sort of things historians have been saying to one another? Uh, why do you think the historiography on white women and slaveholding uh, did not, or perhaps wasn't willing to recognize uh, white women's economic investment and power, starting as girls and continuing throughout their lives? So, why, why the gap uh, when you came to start writing this book? Why why hadn't this been explored in the ways that you were able to? Well, I think for two two important reasons. One, um, the um, we talked about already the the, the laws that were on the books um, really is, suggest suggest to anyone that looks at them that reads them that this this stuff shouldn't have been happening. That these women should not have been able to do what I show that they did in this book. They should not have been able to own you know enslaved people. They should not have been able to go into the slave market and buy enslaved people and sell enslaved people and hire them out, etc. So the laws on the books make it seem like this kind of activity shouldn't be happening. So I think many historians, earlier historians, may have looked at this and also looked at the, the sources. Um, you know, if you look at certain women's diaries and certain women's letters, they're not talking about their economic investments in the institution of slavery, which would lead other historians to, to believe that they didn't have a deep and profound economic investment in the institution. So I think those two things, the fact that the law, on the, both are related to sources, that the sources are certainly um, primary, um, I think, important reasons why um, this story has not been told before. And then I also think that the moment in which women's history became a field of, that's been recognized by the, the larger the larger field of history, the moment in which that happens is a moment in which we are trying to craft a narrative about women's lives that where this doesn't con- fit conveniently in that story. If that makes sense, so it, we are, we if you look at many of the early histories, it's a it's a history of dispossession. It's a history of gender oppression. It's a history of very 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 little of the, those histories have to do with kind of what I call ugly feminism. Uh, you know the the ways in which um, women are able to exercise certain kinds of freedom, ex- um, to acquire certain kinds of power and control because they they oppress other other people and, and including in that um, people of color, women, etc. And so I think. This this story is a story of, uh, it's a very ugly feminist story. These women are able to check off all the feminist boxes, um, but it doesn't conform to some of those earlier um, pioneering studies of women's history, which really um, are were constructed in a way to show kind of a, a story about patriarchy and a story about the impact that patriarchy had on women's lives. Um, and that is a kind of a, a story that doesn't um, um, allow for women's power over others, women's domination and control and brutality um, towards others. It's very helpful. And I think that's a a key part of the answer. We have another question coming in that I'll uh, ask if if maybe there's another element too that you might be be able to uh, bring into the equation. Uh, Brenda Parker is actually the director of African-American interpretation uh, right here at Mount Vernon. It asks about the myth of of delicate white women and, and delicacy and sensitivity, um, how this factors in uh, to your uh, your research. Uh, do you think that the myth that women were too delicate, sensitive for the slave market, weren't able to be there at all, um, uh, spills over in all these areas concerning the image of a pure white woman? 
Um, tell us about how this, uh, these kinds of myths, uh, in particular of the delicate woman, uh, factored in uh, to your thinking. So I, you know, I, what I wanted to try to do is to avoid um, the stereotypes by just going right to the facts, right to the details um, that, that enslaved people um, put forth in these interviews and formerly enslaved people put forth in these interviews. So I wanted this story to be as true to formerly enslaved people's experiences as possible. So I didn't even really engage necessarily with the stereotypes. But what I found was that in those interviews, these formerly enslaved people um, belied those myths. Um, they, they make they make it clear that they were indeed myths. Um, one of the things that I talk about um, in the in the in the book is how, you know, we tend to talk, you know, there's always someone who wants to talk about the kind mistress, right? Um, but what when you look at what formerly enslaved people had to say about the kind mistress, the kind mistress wasn't the kind mistress we have in mind. The kind mistress um, in the minds of formerly enslaved people was a woman who didn't beat them for burning the biscuits, that didn't make them go unclothed, um, half naked in the winter, that basically treated them with human dignity, with, you know, like a modicum of dignity. And that's not the kind mistress that I think a lot of people have in mind when they want to kind of like lean on that. So I think, you know, there's there's the myth of the kind mistress. There's the myth of the um, the mistress that, you know, would never sell an enslaved person away. Well, one way that I do, in fact, engage with the mythology of, of the, the kind mistress of, you know, the silent abolitionist mistress is in the epilogue, because after slavery is over, all of these women who owned enslaved people, many of these enslaved, these many, many of these women who owned enslaved people um, before the war began to craft lost cause narratives that erased their role, erased their deep investments in the economy of American slavery. And so they created um, the mythology that we are still grappling with today. You know, I think in the moment, you know, not to take it to the contemporary, but, you know, every time we see, you know, a white woman like Amy Cooper, for example, you know, um, you know, accosting, verbally accosting a black man in, in Central Park because he's, you know, telling her to put a mask on or not to do something with her dog, you know, it's like we are taken aback. You know, so I think part of that, that surprise, that shock that we're still grappling with, even in, in the contemporary moment when we have these kind of incidents, has to do with that post-Civil War, you know, and that Reconstruction lost cause um, literature that is being written by white women who own slaves, who are intentionally erasing their, their, their deep investments in the perpetuation of the institution of slavery, and are saying that they were just the kind mistresses who just inherited enslaved people, and they had no idea, you know, what was going on down the street, but what was happening in their house was this and that and the other. So I think, you know, they are they are actively constructing that myth in the post-war era. Um, and so I think there's also a little bit of that happening during the during the 19th century as well, um, particularly as the abolitionist movement became a very formal and very powerful one. Women are actually crafting those narratives um, as well and crafting those mythologies around their complicity and in, in, in roles in the institution of slavery. But what, what enslaved people show is that they are indeed myths um, and they belie all of those assumptions, all of those, um, those characterizations um, very, very forcefully. Thank you. That, that's a, a, a really, and, and one of the things about this book that I, people, when you have an opportunity to read it, and I think we uh, we can link to uh, the Yale University Press site where the, uh, this book is now available on paperback. Uh, I One of the things that people will take away from it 
uh, because it's unforgettable, are the accounts of punishment uh, meted out by women and, and, and young women. Uh, it's, it's particularly gripping, and one of the things that I know that uh, um, uh, must have made this, the research for this book quite difficult uh, for you. Uh, and and uh, so we have another audience question that, that would like to, to dive into this, this uh, topic of, of your research process. Um, could you tell us a, a bit more about the, uh, um, what you did to make this book happen in terms of, of the research, the interviews you've already uh, given us a good sense of? Uh, and then um, this um, person, I, I don't know the name, I'm guessing it's not Sweet Peach by, uh, by uh, birth. Um, uh, did you find yourself becoming desensitized in a way to the findings? And that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, a very direct uh, question to ask about how do you possibly grapple with the kinds of challenging and difficult um, uh, instances and, and moments in people's lives that you're forced to read about and, and think about uh, on a regular basis? So that's a wonderful question. And I should also say thank you to the other two individuals who asked the wonderful questions that they posed. Um, I have not become desensitized to this to this material, to the subject matter, to the experiences of formerly enslaved people. And I, you know, I had thought that I may have gotten to that point when I was, you know, working on research for my newest project and stumbled upon, you know, an ar uh, an archival document that just stopped me in my tracks. And I realized that, oh, okay, <laughs> this still is, you know, it still is traumatic for me. Um, and what I what I realized was that, you know. I've been working on this book. I've been working on this book for 10 years, you know, from dissertation to publication for 10 years. And I had to revisit these stories over and over again. I was discovering new stories um, to incorporate into the book. And each time I, each time I, I confronted a, a deeply um, kind of um, traumatic um, story or account, I would have to stop doing my research, whether that means I would have to take a couple of hours of a break or a couple of minutes of a break. I would have to get literally get up from the from the chair, from the computer and move to just create distance between the trauma that I was reading and my myself. Um, and even during the revision process, you would think you've seen this a million times, but then you keep seeing it. Over and over again with every revision, you're reading the same accounts and each time it's equally traumatizing, you know, and I talk, you know, everybody talks about the freshman 15 and there's even the kind of grad school 15. That is that process, the way, you know, d dealing with the kind of emotional um, uh, trauma of this work, this, you know, this uh, part of our history um, took a physical toll on me. Um, and so, you know, I am certainly, I'm far from desensitized from this experience. And I think the reason why I always return to the work is about the people. You know, I, I want, I know that when these enslaved people, formerly enslaved people sat down with these interviewers, they were often sitting across from white people who had been the descendants of slave owners um, who were in fact the children of slave owners they would often know some of the individuals and say oh honey well come on in I know oh, how's your grandpa etc et so they knew these individuals and these were really um, kind of precarious and very tenuous interview contexts you know and when they sat down with them they wanted these stories to be told they wanted us to know what happened to them they wanted us to know that they survived all of this and so who am I, you know, in the present day to go boohoo in my in my closet because I'm I'm reading something that they experienced firsthand. 
So I always return to the people because it's the people when they sat down and told those stories, when they gave those interviews, they wanted us to grapple with that part of our history. And it's my job as a historian to to help to tell those stories or at least to make those stories accessible to people um, in ways that they may not have been before. So. So, yeah. Well, mission accomplished on that. I mean, you've, you've, you've certainly made these these uh, stories available and, and engaging. Uh, so uh, thank you for that. And uh, we have another question that I think going to uh, dive into the uh, part of the research process as well and how you have written about the people that you're writing about, but including the, the, the slave-owning white women. And of course, this is actually a book about white women as slave owners. Mm-hmm. And a lot we spent a lot of our time this evening, rightfully so, describing the lives of the enslaved. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the question uh, from Joan is, is balancing a narrative that's primarily primarily about slave-owning white women, while privileging and honoring the perspectives of enslaved people. Uh, you talked about these being human stories. Talk to us about how you've written about the human stories on, from both the slave-owning and the enslaved um, uh, point of view or the, from the, their experiences. So one of the things I've, I wanted to do with this book is to, to, to talk about these women in a way that, that did not center... Um, male control that did not center um, or focus on their relationships to white men. I wanted to, to see their experiences, to, to talk about their experiences um, on their own terms, you know, where, and, and so that's one of the things that I was kind of frustrated with, with a lot of, a lot of the scholarship about women's relationships, white women's relationships to slavery in the past, where there, that there was always this qualification that their relationships to slavery were indirect because they they happened be, um, through white men, whether those men be their husbands or their fathers, etc. And I wanted to take these women out of that context and understand how they understood slavery, how slavery shaped their lives um, outside of a context that was male dominated, that was that that centered the male um, experience in their relationship to men. And the way to do that was to um, see them as subjects in their own right um, and then go into the records, the, the archival documents um, to find, to try to find them. Because uh, like, as I said, they're not even supposed to be in the legal record. They're not supposed to be in these financial records. And so I just went to those records in the same way that I went to the interviews with formerly enslaved people. And I said, let me see if I can find some women there. <laughs> so I go into, you know, um, the, the legal, actual court records, um, actual legal suits filed by women um, married women who are, you know, suing their husbands, you know, because their husbands sold a slave that belonged to them or that they inherited from their father and he wasn't supposed to, you know, um, suing their husband's creditors, suing, I've even seen, you know, women suing family members, male family members, fathers and brothers who, you know, took, and, and nephews and sons, etc. So I wanted to see how these women engaged with the economy of slavery on their own terms. Um, and the way to do that was to look for them. To, to look for them and to see what they had to say um, in, in those sources. And the other thing um, that I, I looked at were, um, as I mentioned before, um, financial records. So we, you know, when you buy something today, you get a receipt when you, well, hopefully you get a receipt when you pay for it. Um, when, in, when, in, when slave-owning women um, bought or sold enslaved people, they received documentation of that transaction as well. So I was flabbergasted to find, you know, women on both sides of the of the transaction um, in thousands and thousands of what were called bills of sale for enslaved people throughout the, you know, throughout the country, throughout the South. And 
there are there were often court cases connected to them when those sales went horribly wrong. So in those court documents, I got was able to get at women's voices. Women are complaining. Women are telling the court why they they should win these cases. And in those those in their testimony, they often give this really rich these really rich um, kind of lineages, these genealogies of how they came to own and slave people in the first place. And so I was able to get at those those relationships, those economic relationships that these women had to the institution through sources that you wouldn't that we wouldn't expect to find them. And so rather than looking at their diaries or their letters, I looked in these places where they weren't supposed to be. And lo and behold, they're there and they're talking and we understand how they conceptualized their economic investments in the institution of slavery and how they articulated those those, those um, investments um, to other people when they were deeply interested in preserving and protecting them when they were in jeopardy. So that was one of the really important ways that I was able to get at both the voices of, ensla- of, of slave-owning women, but also to tell the other side of that story, um, to get at how formerly enslaved people talked about their lives under those women's, um, those women's control and in those women's communities in their, in, their, in their kind of realm or sphere of influence. Well, we have a lot of questions I want to make sure we have time for. We're, we're coming down under our final 10 minutes, uh, but, but there's a, a question that we have uh, that I, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on. Um, one of the things when you study the 18th century in particular, we think about Virginia and South Carolina have very different systems of slavery, those kinds of things. I wonder if in your research, if you found any differences uh, in how uh, slavery and particularly women in slavery um, might have appeared based on region. Uh, do you see something different in, in uh Alabama from what you see on the coast uh, and, and, and the old uh, original uh, 13 colonies. What, what do you see in, in terms of regional distinctions or urban rural? What do you, is, anything jump out at you? So I think that the urban rural distinction is, is a, a really important one. So you see in places like Charleston, which is a port city, um, it's, you know, and, and in places like New Orleans, which I think is the third, it was the third largest port city in the world um, at the time and also was home to the largest slave market in, in the country. Um, you see women, I mean, everywhere, just everywhere, and not simply just in the slave market proper, but engaged in all kinds of economic and market activity. So they're literally teeming, the city is teeming with, you know, women who are engaged in in mercantilist activity, in, in, in you know, buying and selling um, um, act, uh, uh, property and, 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 and the rest of it. Um, so you see this kind of highly, you know, energized um, market environment, which women take full advantage of um, in port cities. In the rural areas, it's not it's not defined, you know, in in the same ways in large part because they don't have access to um, these these kind of um, very vibrant market, this very vibrant market culture. Um, but nonetheless, they are still deeply invested in the institution of slavery. And one of the things that I'm still trying to figure out, even though the book is published, but one of the one of the things that I, I started to do when I when I was working on this project um, had to do with the numbers question. So many people, and there that might be one of the questions that pops up tonight. Um, many people say, well, how many of these women were there? how many women own slaves? Like, where's the number? <laughs> what is the number? And so there, there hasn't been a number in large part because the data that historians have compiled has not taken into consideration the gender of the slave owner. So we know about the, the gender of the, the enslaved people, but not the gender of the slave owner. So one of the things that I started in graduate school was trying to get at a number, trying to look at data sets to try to see if I could come to a 
come to some, you know, finite number. Um, I haven't finished that work because as I mentioned, I didn't expect to find any women. So when I found all these women, it was just like, what am I going to do with all this data? So I'm still working through the data. But one of the things that I was able to notice was that women typically own twice as many female slaves as male slaves. And while we might think that that was the case because they, you know, um, use them in the household um, or perhaps because they needed, you know, they needed to hire them out um, to do, engage in domestic labor or what have you. Um, it doesn't seem to be related to to those two explanations. And so I'm trying to figure out why that is. Um, that doesn't seem to hold true to the to the rural areas, but it does seem to hold true in urban areas. So perhaps it has something to do with that, but it doesn't seem necessarily um, to have to do with that because there are some exceptions where I'm able to see um, the, the, the double female number in rural areas on certain plantations that women own as well. But that's one of the things that I'm, I'm looking at. The other thing that I have been able to do is look at smaller data sets in places like South Carolina. And in those smaller data sets, women constituted uh, 40%, um, 38%, so approximately 40, 40% um, of the slaveholders in those smaller data sets. And that also, that holds true in a data set that I looked at in Washington, D.C. as well. So I'm trying to get at that number in large part because I think um, it will help Help to um, it, it's connected to the question of whether there's regional um, specificity or regional differences that that can be um, explained. Um, one of the ways to get at that question is to look at census data. So in the 1850 and 1860 census, um, the federal government decided it was a great idea to finally count how many enslaved people were in the country. So one of the ways that we can get at you know, whether there's a, rural, a distinction between uh, women who own slaves in the rural area versus the urban area is to look at the census data. And that's some of the data that I'm looking at. So it's it's something that I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in. And um, it does seem to be there so, does seem to be a distinction, particularly with the rural urban split. But ongoing work more more still to do. Yes, <laughs> that's great. Uh, well, another question coming in is something you've already touched on tonight, and I think people uh, may have noticed when you were talking about the the uh, sophistication of the marketplace and, and these kinds of things. And, and I wonder if you could talk to us about about this uh, this new history of capitalism, uh, particularly in, the, in studying the South. Can you uh, tell us uh, just give give a first timer a sense of what this is uh, and uh, and where your work might fit in? So I, I'll just keep it very short and sweet because I, I kind of backed into economic history. I try not to engage in the slavery capitalism debate because it can get a little ugly if you've not noticed on social media. So I try to avoid it. Um, but it's essentially the argument is that um, that slavery was fundamental to the development of American capitalism and global capitalism more broadly. It starts with Eric Williams, um, who was a Caribbean scholar. Um, his his argument and theory at that at that period in the 1950s was immediately dismissed by by, by what many white historians and scholars. But now we know <laughs> that there is great credence to to Eric Williams's thesis on on the relationship between um, uh, slavery and capitalism. He was specifically talking about. Um, uh, Caribbean slavery and, and capitalism in, in Europe. Um, but, you know, as scholars of American slavery have also, um, you know, also um, made the same argument um, here. And, you know, I think looking at the ways in which, um, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize 
how interconnected um, the North was to, to the South, even after the North abolished slavery. And looking at those Northern and Southern relationships, something that a historian Calvin Shermerhorn um, looks at in the business of uh, his book, The Business of Slavery, looking at the ways in which Northern industry, for example, the textile mills in, in Lowell, uh, Massachusetts, um, how those industries in the North, although um, employing free laborers, were highly dependent, heavily dependent on Southern agriculture, in particular, um, cotton cultivation and the, cult, the cotton that enslaved people produced. So without that cotton, um, those, those textile mills would probably not have been as, as um, productive, as profitable for Northern capitalists. So that's one really important kind of way in which you can talk about the relationship between American slavery and American capitalism. Um, you know, Sven Becker from, from Harvard has it's a huge book on the global history, it's a global history of cotton. He talks about this relationship. Edward Baptist talks about the relationship in, in his um, book, The um, Half Has Never Been Told. Um, but in terms of my, my own work, more recently I'm thinking, um, about this, these, this relationship, and particularly how women um, play a role in not only the expansion of slavery, but subsequently the development of American capitalism, because it is the expansion of slavery into the West after the United States um, acquires the Louisiana Territory. And for those for those who aren't familiar, Louisiana, it, at that point, the territory was not the small boot-shaped state that we think of. It was the entire middle of the United States. So we basically doubled in size as a consequence of the, um, the Louisiana Purchase um, and the purchase of the Louisiana Territory. But what that also meant was that with the forcible and brutal removal of indigenous people from that area, um, slavery could indeed expand into that territory territory as well. Um, and as a consequence of that, um, the story of slavery's expansion, the story of Western migration has always been a masculine one. It's always been largely centering the experiences of men who move out into the, into the West. But what I, what, I'm, what I saw in the, in the archives when I was writing, writing this book was that the, the, the capital that men often used to buy the land that they cultivated cotton on, and the slaves themselves that the, that cultivated cultivated that cotton were often owned by their wives, <laughs> often owned by their mothers. So their their capital and their slaves were fueling um, slavery's expansion into the West, and subsequently the development of American capitalism because the cotton that comes out of this, the West becomes fundamental to Northern industry and also British industry. Um, so that's one of the ways in which I think um, it's a very clear relationship between American slavery and capitalism and the ways in which I'm thinking about it centers these white slave-owning women and the capital, um, the, the property that they bring into their marriages, in particular the enslaved property that they bring into their marriages and how that how those enslaved people are fundamental to that expansion and subsequent development of the capitalist system in America. This has been a fascinating uh, conversation with you. We've, we've reached our hour. Uh, I want to thank you for coming uh, to, 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 to Mount Vernon virtually uh, to be a part of this event with us. Uh, okay. Thank you so much for, for the book and, and for this conversation. Uh, I, I know a lot of people out there are probably wondering, uh, since you teach at the, at the University of California, uh, what's, what's happening there? What's going to happen with you and, and your students uh, as we get ready for the new school year? Any idea yet? Yes, so Berkeley has decided to begin the semester remotely. So classes will be remote, and then they're kind of a, they're in a wait and see mode after that. So I presume that we will probably be fully remote for the entire semester. If I could put some money on it, I, I predict that. 
Yeah. Well, uh, well, uh, hopefully that will give you some time to get, get some work done on your next project, to continue the work on the data uh, in this project. And uh, again, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome at Mount Vernon in person. Anytime you're on this side of the country, please come uh, and you. visit us. And, uh, and thank you, uh, Dr. Jones-Rogers. Thank you to all of you for joining us here tonight. Uh, have a wonderful evening, and we hope to see you at Mount Vernon again soon. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky. Our music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hildebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, you may do so by making a contribution to Mount Vernon. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.